Welcome to episode 265 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. Before we get to Stageworthy, I wanted to mention St. Nick and the Big F*** Up. St. Nick and the Big F*** Up is a holiday audio drama in six parts written and performed by me and tells the story of a part-time mall Santa who's having the worst day. Chapter 1 came out last week and Chapter 2 is available now at stnickandthebigfup.com as well as everywhere you get podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 265 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. My guest this week is Artistic Programming Coordinator for Brampton's Rose Theatre, Danny Harvey. Officially, what's your what what is your title at the Rose right now? Well, my title at the Rose is uh, kind of a long, uh, innocuous one. Um, I believe it is now um, artistic uh, artistic programmer, um, artistic program coordinator, or something along those lines. Essentially, uh, I'm a I'm a my, my main project is I'm a, an arts presenter uh, hmm. ta- and talent buyer uh, for the city of Brampton performing arts department in the, the biggest uh, of our venues is the Rose. So we will probably use city of Brampton performing arts and uh, hmm. Rose interchangeably. Um, they are uh, unique entities um, in that performing arts Brampton is uh, is an overarching entity. And the big difference is we do own three venues, um, including one outdoor venue. And I also do the programming for like Canada Day and New Year's Eve uh, day, uh, concerts slash uh, events. So, but the bulk of my work is Rose Theatre related. Hmm. I mean, Canada Day, New Year's Eve, that's got to be singularly unique this year. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing, uh, it's pr- strictly music, um, but we've been doing, uh, for Canada Day, we did a pre-record concert, um, and it was great. It was Walk Off the Earth, a great band that I've actually been trying to get live for Canada Day for a few years now. And uh, they did a, they did a special concert just for us. Nice. Uh, it was w- excellently produced. They're, they're, they're a top-notch band, uh, and having them perform in their kind of living room space was was awesome awesome it's kind of where a lot of their uh their youtube videos which are kind of what they're famous for um right were created so having that space in a specifically uh, one time only brampton concert was great but you know it's not live and that's what we do uh, yeah we, we do live events so i would rather sacrifice production uh and 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 certainty and editing for the experience of knowing it's live and it's happening right there for you and online and a lot of the features you can, in a lot of the um, platforms, you can add a chat feature. And I mm-hmm. think that's great. So people can like essentially talk to each other, talk to the artists, give thumbs up, give likes and loves if it's on Facebook or whatever uh, platform. And that, uh, you know, the audience, the artists, sorry, aren't always looking at that, but mm-hmm. when they do, they, you know, that you can tell they feel the love, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, in terms of uh, the the venues that 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 you have in Brampton, uh, other than the Rose, is are there 
other venues that are for that are, are theatrical present presentation spaces or is the rose really the the main theater that's that's actually a really cool question um the uh the, there are there are three different buildings with four venues. So uh, the Rose has got its 868-seater. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big, big soft seat. Medium-sized venue for the country, but it's a big soft seat. Um, and uh, the uh, Black Box, which is 80 to 100, depending on its configuration. Uh, we call it the Studio or Theater 2. Uh, then we have the Cyril Clark Library Theater. Just underwent a pretty decent uh, renovation, replacing a lot of antique-looking uh, uh, 70s orange uh, furniture. Um, and that's a, ooh, I might get this wrong, but I think it's a little under 200, like 180 seater uh, library mm. lecture hall, kind of in the, in the basement of a library. Um, it's great little, I, I mean, I got some, I, I played Danny in Greece for a community theater production there in which I was horrifically miscast uh, and could not have had more fun. Uh, so, you know, like that, that's been there for a long time. And then there's uh, Lester B. Pearson, um, Performing Arts Center, or LBP. And that's actually uh, the first place I ever performed as an actor when I was a teenager, some 20-some mm. uh, odd years ago. Uh, and it's a, it's a 400, it was about a 480-seater or something like that. But now it's about a 400-seater because they've just renovated it beautifully. Uh, mm. It kind of opened up, and then COVID happened, and it really hasn't we haven't done anything with it yet. But it's a stunning <sighs> new space that we're really excited about. And the idea behind that is it's lifelong learning and education uh, in the performing arts. So it's got that that's kind of the, the the direction we're planning on going with it. Still a rental venue, still a place that we could potentially program, but it might be more youth oriented or develop oriented. That that being said, it's lifelong education, not just youth. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea is we're going to try and create opportunities for like it's the people's theater, if that makes sense. The Rose is in a lot of ways as well. We're still community theater companies and community orchestras that utilize the space. But uh, we really, we Lesby Pearson has been developed for something for the community to grow into mm. and with. Now, is the Rose, when, when you look at the Rose, is it more of a roadhouse than a place where it's a it's a rented or or do you do is it equal equal measure both it's like 50 50 now i'd say Mm. um there's uh it depends on how you look at uh, what rental means you know rentals like get into kind of the mildly boring minutiae there's rentals that are you know we're we're renting it we're bringing in our own artists we're a touring production company we're going to rent and sell to the general public or there's um you know dance recitals uh that is is very specific audience in mind or other cultural events brampton being incredibly intercultural and multicultural has um a lot of different events that other theaters might never see there's um and i'm kicking myself for forgetting the name of it but a certain uh kind of south asian dance that um, young ladies study for years and they will do a concert that is a day long um, for all their friends and family and it's just them and usually a tabla artist or a couple other artists and musicians um, lending support and there's food and it's like this big beautiful community um, event that people rent the theater and fill it it's it's like a rite of passage for the young ladies that participate and I'm kicking myself for not knowing the mm. name of the dance um, or the, the style uh, but it's uh, it, you know that's a rental as well that takes mm. over so I would say the vast majority of public facing events are are done as a presenting house uh mm. and the, the um it, and it is a roadhouse we i mean nothing lives uh, with us for very long and uh when we worked together you and i uh we were still a um a presenting or a producing house now that mm. stopped about four years ago five years ago now uh just a change in um, priority for the brand mm. uh uh 
were municipally uh, owned, municipally funded, and they, there was a change in direction of what the uh, city wanted to do. So the production department, unfortunately, uh, and also fortunately, because some changes are good, um, mm. just kind of stopped existing uh, in the way that it did, which was, okay. um, I stayed, I got a <laughs> change of job, but um, some dear friends of mine uh, are no longer employed there, which is, was a kind of the dark side of that. I mean, on the on the on the downside. I mean, I used to after doing my summer uh, of the the Shakespeare the Rose. There was um, like I I bragged to people like Brampton's one of the only places where the city is like presenting theater and how amazing it was. Um, so it's a little bit sad to hear that 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 that's no longer the case. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I totally I totally hear why it's sad. But actually, the changes they made are. I think even better for, for the amount uh, for how a city or a municipality invests into the arts. And that is, it was just, they created a, a robust uh, arts plan um, that's mm. actually adopted by city council and is completely, Brampton's so ahead of the game in that, that other municipalities mm. are going, wow, you have a whole plan that, uh, that overshadows not just your municipally run venue, which is a common occurrence in a lot of uh, uh, cities, but you know, it, it's, it's just how we develop, artists from the ground up and how mm-hmm. we how we do grassroots development of actors poets musicians everything and it, it's really starting to ca- catch hold and that's it's been exciting in that way but yeah i miss having a production company but we still do have community theater companies and mm-hmm. and uh, a fledgling mainly south asian um com- community theater company that unfortunately mm-hmm. lost their uh almost entirely south asian cast of 12 angry men uh oh. they lost their show because of covid and i'm so uh-huh. bummed because how how cool is that and how that's, Brampton is that <laughs> that's pretty awesome that's yeah. pretty awesome um now as somebody who is a presenter for want of a better word who's like who's booking things to come into a venue like the Rose um what does that look like are you do you go out are you seeking out uh companies are you are they coming to you and 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 what are you looking for in a show that 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 you want to bring to the rose um okay so yes uh the answer to that is yes they are i'm seeking out and yes they are coming to me um both of those things are absolutely true i i get a a lot of uh solicitation and it's welcome solicitation um of, i have this show i have this artist um i have this this spoken word piece that i've been working on and they'll, i'll get i'll get an email um it'll either come through just a general you know, theater email address, or people will get my email address and send me their electronic press kits or their, their, their one page of what they've got going on. And I'll review all of it. I always review it. Um, it's, it's my, literally my job and I'm always happy to look at it. And I respond to most of it. Uh, sometimes it's very much a general, like it's obviously sent to everybody on the planet. So I'm a little, it, nobody's waiting for my response and it, it, you can kind of tell the difference. Um, and it, it's, it's literally everything. It's literally a lot of cover bands, which I don't book a lot of cover bands. Um, they they tend to rent the venue and it's better money for them. So that, that's fine. Um, and a, a lot of uh, uh, big musicals that are coming through, you know, north on the North American tour. We don't grab onto a lot of that because we're almost always instantly radiused out by the Mervishes or, um, or you know, something mm. else that's going to be yeah. radiused out. If most people might know what that means, but there's a radius clause if you're within 120 kilometers and Brampton's like 30 away. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't think it's that close by driving it, but it's not very far away from Toronto. Uh, so we kind of get pushed out of that a little bit. Um, sure. 
So, which leads me to the other way where we do a lot of bookings, and that's seeking it out ourselves. And uh, there's a beautiful company, which I'm also, or uh, uh, art service organization called Ontario Presents, which, are you familiar with it, Bill? I am not. Okay, so um, Ontario Presents is something that I feel like every artist should at least have some knowledge about, and that's not, how dare you not know about it. It's kind of the hidden gem in a way. I actually serve as a recording secretary on the board now, which is a terrible job for me. I have issues with paying attention and I write nothing down. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm on the board and they needed somebody to fill that job, so I did. Um, it's, a, it's an art service organization and what it exists to do, and they have a really beautiful mandate, which I'm going to butcher if I try and say what it is, but it's basically treating agents, artists, and presenters in equal measure. Uh, introduce us to each other. And um, what happens is every year, except for COVID year, obviously, uh, there's a, a an event called um, Ontario Contact. And now mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this event. That I've heard of, yes. Okay, so Ontario Presents is the, uh, is the entity that oversees that as well as okay. several other projects. Um, so Contact is an opportunity for us all to get in person. Uh, there's a jury process for the showcasers. And you watch a bunch of showcases. They're like uh, a series of two, three-hour uh, blocks over three days um, that you, you watch various concerts. Here's a classical pianist. Here's a stand-up comedian. Here's a hypnotist. Here's um, an excerpt from a, from a one-man show. Uh, check out all these pieces, and then we go and talk about it. And then there's, of course, the contact room, which is like uh, any trade show. You walk around. You talk to all the agents uh, and all the presenters, and everybody kind of gets to know each other a little bit more. You have um, – we also do, like, workshops around that. We talk about social equality, arts for change. Uh, you know, there's a big conversation that's been going on lately um, around Canada 150 and subsequently is Truth and Reconciliation and how to give appropriate representation to Indigenous artists and how we can help audience build and support those artists and how they can mm. help us you know show their work and uh now a lot of the conversation is ha- turning to anti-black racism and uh and fighting tokenism and making mm-hmm. sure we're not just checking boxes and this this exists to keep us accountable and mm-hmm. also introduce each to, to each other and it's also you know getting together with all these different agents performers actors and presenters is a hell of a lot of fun it really mm-hmm. is like it's the drinks flow and the conversations are, are <laughs> earnest and good and it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of uh, knowledge exchange, but it's also a good time. Hmm. And just to change gears a little bit, um, what's your theater origin story? How did you not just how did you end up in the position that you're in, but how did you start being involved with theater? How what was your entryway into theater? How did you start the journey to where you are now? Oh, that's, that's um, yeah, I'll get in Cole's notes that a little, I think, because um, I get all nostalgic and weepy. Uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up, um, my mom loved theater. We watched movies and stuff like that. But we didn't really have a much of a theater connection. You know, I watched Bye Bye Birdie a million times, which was like one of Jesus Christ Superstar. These, like, I, I wore the uh, VHS tapes thin. Um, and then uh, in, in high school, uh, my older sister, Cheyenne, who's incredibly talented, uh, was invited to do a community theater show from her teacher in school. And I, being a young teenager, I kind of followed my sister everywhere she went. And I started just auditioning. And I am not talented. Uh, certainly not. Nobody wants to see me sing and dance. I mean, they've had to, but nobody wants to. Um, so I would, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would I'd follow her wherever she went. And I started just... Um, auditioning and I did some of the you know ensemble stuff because you know in community theater being a, a male you're 
in for the most part, almost always. So yeah. the fact that I could not sing, act, or dance was irrelevant. I got better over the years, but I'm not. I certainly didn't get great, you know, as I found my body and my my voice, and I went to school. Um, but yeah, so I started just being in the ensemble, and then I kind of got. Uh, then I got a job at the now closed Heritage Theater, which was part of Performing Arts Brampton, and uh, I got that job when I was 18, and here I am, 22 almost 23 years later, still working there. And my job's changed significantly, but uh, that that's kind of how I came up that way. But being involved in community theater, I, I really got an idea of how the storytelling worked. And I wanted to be a director. Like I was like, I, I want to get my head around this. So uh, uh, Scott Lale, who was used to run the production department at the city of Brampton, uh, also was doing some community theater work. It was kind of a, you know, supporting one of their shows. It was Man of La Mancha invited me to be the assistant director. Uh, and I did, and I kind of never looked back, started directing a year later later and uh and, and luckily when we had our own production department i directed some 30 odd full-length plays a ton of musicals and really got uh that into my blood and really started to fall in love with it in that way uh and from that um i just continued working at the theater i worked in the box office for a spell i was a technician for two weeks before everybody agreed that i should work in the box office again um and because that's hard you got to know things that i do not know to be a technician uh i can't even turn the lights on in the theater a theater i I've worked in since they opened the doors. I don't know. I don't know where the light switch is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I've had the pleasure of being around theater in work play. And, and, and I went to Humber college for comedy writing and performance um, in a, fit of um despair and bad reasoning <laughs> i suppose but uh i had a great time in that in that particular program but you know it's not exactly you don't walk out and get uh a six <laughs> six figure salary with a comedy diploma um uh, no, no. that's showbiz right yeah. uh, so you know i i i, I edu- my education my play my work was all theater folks and it's just kind of what what i became and what i did and so i've kind of done a little bit i don't want to say everything i haven't agented but that's about the only thing i haven't done is been mm. an agent and even then i advise artists relatively often just from experience um on you know who you should talk to and i've, I've helped artists find agents that they might not have known each other existed and I've, I've i've been able to facilitate and broker some pretty rewarding um relationships mm. Mm. Um, you've kind of mentioned your 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 stint as Danny in a production of Grease. <laughs> you mentioned being being miscast. Is there a character in Greece that you should have been cast as? Oh my God! You know, there's a guy, um, and I can't remember. I've directed this piece, and I forgot his name. But there's a guy who sings about mooning, and, uh, and uh-huh, sings uh-huh. the song "Mooning Over You." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's more my speed. I'm a you know big guy, a physical comedian. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's nobody wants. I'm not the dream hunk, you know. Like, no. <laughs> I, I, I I could go get my fiance, and she'd agree wholeheartedly with me. That I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> now are you are you Bam- brampton born and raised is that was that where you where you grew up i was born on a warm september 2nd 1980 in brampton uh peel memorial hospital uh hmm. not not two kilometers from where the theater now stands so yes it's to me. Hmm. i i am a, i'm a brampton boy uh born bred and I've, I've lived outside of the city for very brief times but of my 40 years i've been here i'd say 38 and a half of them now having sort of like directed yourself into theater and sort of like moving towards it when you first started thinking about theater and and and, and making it in some in some way your career 
were you thinking that you would do that in I don't know Toronto or New York or somewhere else? And did it ever enter your mind that you're the that your career would essentially be in this city where you were born? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, I feel like my answer should be no. I knew I had to move to Toronto, and I but I didn't. I really a hundred percent wanted to focus on making Brampton a better artistic place, making mm. Brampton a little bit more accessible, exciting. I because I started working in when I was eighteen at the Heritage Theater, and I was like, I want to be on this stage. I want to make this relevant. And I very quickly started working in 1999, so like the year after I started there, in supporting the Shakespeare in the Square Festival, and, I, and uh, which that's what you, you worked with as well. And um, I, I was producing there. I was, I was, I think I, I was acting a little bit. Um, mm. I was uh, assistant stage managing. I was just kind of doing all of that. And I just wanted to watch arts in Brampton grow. And that mm. was really what made me excited about it is because it wasn't unforged. There was people that were doing work long before I was there, but it was still raw. And I looked at Toronto and of being this place where there's just every year, there's all these theater programs are pushing out another 100, 150 professional actors ready to take a, mm. take a part. And they're all vying for the same five parts, it felt like. And uh, I watched that happen year after year after year. And I just thought to myself, like, I can do it here. Nobody's doing this here. I can be the biggest fish in my little pond, maybe. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a medium fish in a pretty big pond, I think, right now. Uh, that being said, like, I, 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 my work isn't done. Like, I'm still heavily committed to my work in Brampton. And, uh, you know, I'm not um, born under a rock. I, I, I own the internet. I, I have access to the internet. I know how Brampton can be perceived. Uh, and most of it is, I think, very unjust. I think there's a little bit of a hint of racism to some of people's negative views of Brampton. There's mm-hmm. certainly a hint of classism to people's mm-hmm. negative uh, views on Brampton. Brampton is a blue-collar, working-man city. Uh, mm-hmm. Brampton is a, is a multi-ethnic, uh, intercultural city. Brampton also has an incredibly engaging artistic community. They have an incredibly engaging uh, community of, of artists artists of color, of queer artists, uh, they're all here. We have artists that are pouring out of Brampton that don't necessarily say they're from Brampton, but Jesse Reyes, Alessia Cara, these are Brampton artists um, that are, are, are topping charts and all over the mm. place. They're, they're mm-hmm. from this, this town, and they, they've been, some of them have been supported through this town, some of them haven't, uh, but a big part of the work we're doing is trying to make sure that if there's another Alessia Cara, and there will be, coming out of Brampton, a city of 600,000 people, there will be more major artists coming out of the city. We are going to be part of their story and not just to be a feather in our cap but to show people that of, from this city from these different walks of life these these black brown white etc folks that they can all work together and create together and we want to be part of that story from the beginning and developing and helping and there's a number of programs that we have in place to help with that and they're they're all a little bit covid kicked but uh that doesn't change the fact that it's such a major focus of what i do right now um, I want you to 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 think back because I'm I'm really curious about how you've seen the theater scene and the art scene grow and change in Brampton since you started being involved in it. Mm. So, um, like all cities in Ontario, and like I'd say a lot of Canada, um, theater was done for and mostly by colonizers settlers that uh, if you want to use that language which i don't always love to use but i think in, in this context it's a good it's a good way to make the difference as the population of brampton changed and it's still changing the demographics switched from um uh my a majority 
white middle class population to majority South Asian. Um, now, South Asian isn't in itself its own. There's several subcategories within South Asian. We can't lump everybody from that part of the world together, and we'd be foolish to. But for the sake of this conversation, we will. Um, the change has ch- that that's a vast majority of population. Theater does not change as fast as that population does, and it's hard to figure out how to earn the trust of that population because that the, the, those segments of population will rent the theater and show like for example there's a bangra festival uh bangra dance that does exceptionally well but if i were to try and put that on myself no one would come you need the credibility from the community so you're starting to see people rent and put shows on for their their sub demographics of of the uh of the population um it's incredibly cool. So we're trying to help support that as a way to build the trust and supporting that by telling their stories, supporting them with marketing ways that we're not going to make any money nor charge them, but help tell their stories as best we can. Um, And that's become an incredibly important part of the work that we do is trying to develop these artists. So so we're seeing the trend go that the theater specifically municipal theater should represent the people who pay the taxes to keep it open. Mm -hmm. Now this leads to friction. there are folks that um, you know have kept the theaters open since before the Rose was built in 2006, way right back to the heritage, that have been subscribers that see the change and don't like it. And that's something that we have to combat because there's a little bit of my world is falling apart mentality that isn't, is mm-hmm. kind of inaccurate for yeah. um, some people that are, te- are our more traditional theater audience. But that being said, the vast majority of our regular theater audience see the change, get excited about it, and want to check out new things. So trying to weigh those things together, making sure we're not losing the core audience that kept us together, keeping them engaged, entertained, wanting to buy a new subscription every year, and um, and then trying to gain new supporters, new new members of the audience. That's a challenge. And I will say the best version I've ever seen us do of that in our programming is when we had Rupi Kaur in uh, to mm. do a book reading, and it's a bit of a show as well, and she's absolutely phenomenal to watch she's charismatic she's funny she's beautiful she's cool she's so talented it's it's dripping from the walls um but we saw every walk of life that brampton has to offer we saw seek hipsters we saw middle-aged white people I, I i saw teenagers i saw everybody that could possibly you would imagine being interested in rupee core checking her show out and that was amazing mm. and so we're trying to get more of that sort of thing mm. uh and so we can tell a story because rupee core of course is from brampton as um most people say she's from toronto but nope she's from the bramps <laughs> um and and so like we we want more of that feel more of that work in our space um now the idea of you know the the theater historically being uh presented and performed by the colonizers mm-hmm. and we'll use that term um is that one of the reasons and this might be a difficult question it might be tender question is that one of the reasons why um things like shakespeare uh, at the Rose or Shakespeare in the Square had to go. Yeah, um, uh, there's something about. I mean, because you know, let's face it. We Shakespeare is an import from a colonizing nation, and mm-hmm. so you can understand why it doesn't really serve the community of Brampton. Yes. Um, so partially, I think I think that is why it was harder to fight to keep it around. It really was a budgetary concern. 
uh, was one of the primary reasons. It was always revenue neutral. Uh, well, actually revenue negative. Uh, there was like some donation mm. boxes, but you know, we yeah. were paying full freight equity actors, not a, not a whole equity cast, but and then we were still paying a reasonable amount of an honorarium to the non-equity cast and not mm-hmm. seeing a rent and then costumes, all the production costs. I don't sure. know, lecture anybody yeah. on production costs that's going to be listening to this. Um, all, of, all of those, uh, those costs had like maybe, you know, it, we were lucky we saw a hundred dollars back a night on a $20,000 um, investment for, for, for across the summer, the twenty thousand is probably being a little bit low on that number, a, a little bit of an undershot. Um, so then it's hard to say, but the people need it when the people are of South Asian descent, and mm-hmm. our, our our audiences were becoming a little anemic. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, we when we first started, it was, I'd say two three hundred people a night and then we were getting down to like 50 and then sometimes if it was a little cloudy we get 30 people and yeah. it also might have just run its course you know the shakespeare's yeah. got 39 plays but like eight of them are performable uh <laughs> you know to like to gen- yeah stratford could take a, a, a kick at some shows you're still playing to half houses half the time uh but like we we couldn't do that we're not going to do cymbeline out in the square because people will stay away in droves because it's not yeah. necessarily you know your your non-paying audience uh, and aren't aren't making that show a destination. You either know you're coming to that show because you know the show, or you stumble upon it and you're checking it out. But nobody's sticking around for more than a head turn and a walk by for Cymbeline. But yeah. people might stick around for R&J or uh, Midsummer or something that they might have studied or might might resonate with them in some way. Um, and so we kind of did all those two or three or four times. Yeah. And I think we just ran out of the interest from the existing audience and uh, ran out of funding and um, you know, when I first started it in, uh, with it in 99, there was nothing else happening in the summer downtown. Yeah. And Brampton built like this huge outdoor venue with a large screen. It had movie nights and uh, there's jazz concerts happening in another park in the, the park across the street from where we did Shakespeare in the square. And just all this kind of life came into downtown hmm. Brampton. It wasn't a sleepy little town anymore. And it kind of was more exciting than the Shakespeare and it had been done. And I think that's a big reason why it, it went kaput and also why hmm. nobody came and picked it up. Um, yeah. Because a community group could have come in and said, you know what, I like this idea. I want to rent the space and do do theater outside. And that could very easily have happened. It's actually how it started in the first place before uh, it started to become city run. And uh, there's just nobody, nobody came and did that. Hmm. And I think it really is partially the changing demographic. Uh, that, that is, a, that is an absolutely a fact. Yeah. No, I, I know a lot of, a lot of younger actors who some of them, you know, if you go to a school that, that was like a classically training school and they, they trained you on the classics, you might have a love of Shakespeare, but I know a lot of young actors who are like, Shakespeare doesn't speak to me. I don't know why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Forget about it. And I think, it's one thing when it's foisted on you in high school and a lot of times people come out from that with a negative experience and a negative opinion of Shakespeare and it's hard to win them back. So, you know, also again, it's the art of a colonizer. And if you're, if, and it doesn't necessarily speak to the, the community. Yeah. I, I think that's really, it really is. It's um, I don't think people are necessarily saying this is the art of the colonizer and I'm not going, but I think that's what's playing in, in, in their subconscious. Like this isn't for me as in no way speaks to me. And it's funny. The first time I ever heard somebody say, I think we should probably stop doing less, start doing less Shakespeare was mm-hmm. uh, a very well-respected uh, uh, director in the Toronto scene that I worked with for a time. And uh, he, he appreciated it. He saw its value. He thought it was great. I'm not dropping names cause it's not really uh, my place to quote him. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, he, he did, he, he, he was the first 
arts professional that I incredibly respected that didn't want to talk about how great Shakespeare was. He, sure, res- yeah. he respected it. He respected Shakespeare. But it, it, it was the first time I met somebody that wasn't as Shakespeare-centric as I was. And it like rocked me a bit. I'm like, what? This isn't the most important thing imaginable? I don't understand what you're talking about. Because it was so central to my... Um, uh, my education uh, in, in, in theater, which wasn't a formal education, but just how I learned about it was through doing Shakespeare in the Square to the point where I actually find it confusing when people think it's highbrow because I'm not an academic at all. I, I'm not mm. a stupid man, but I'm not, I, I don't sit, go through and look at the academic meanings. I kind of like that it's funny and weird and kind of silly for the most part. And I've always enjoyed that. And there's a lot of beauty to it and like, and beautiful poetry and all that sort of stuff. But for the most part, it's kind of silly. I subscribe to the belief that Romeo and Juliet's not a romance piece. It's kind of a comedy. These guys are all idiots, you know? <laughs> and like, every one of you are dumb and every you deserve what happens to you. Um, but like, you know, so... I kind of always saw it as silly and fun and kind of a dalliance with a little bit of pretension in the, in the language, but that's fine. I, I, I'm all for that. And as I learned more about it, I learned about the beauty of it. And I, I started teaching it in schools as part of my, as part of the job uh, going into high schools and trying to make Shakespeare a little bit more fun and accessible, which I had moderate success at, but you know, some kids just, you know, no, nobody kills Shakespeare for a kid worse than a bad English teacher. Why it's taught in English. Yep. Never understand. It's a, it's, 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 you know, go home and read Shakespeare. That's not what it's for, man. Nobody, yeah, no. nobody wrote Shakespeare. <laughs> I say nobody wrote Shakespeare because we know Shakespeare didn't write all of it. Nobody wrote <laughs> Shakespeare uh, to be read at home against your will in between no. dinner and dessert. That wasn't the, the idea. You want to hear it. You want to watch it played. And, you know, then folks wouldn't learn anything about the language and be told you have to read this passage and you'd be counting down which kid you were, which passage you were going to get. Like, yeah. is a teacher going up and down the rows or left and right? I don't know. What am I going to read? I have to study this and you pay attention to nothing. Yeah. You know, that, that whole shitty way of teaching it. Um, it, it Shakespeare's to be experienced. All theaters to be experienced. Studying it, it seems kind of in English seems silly to me. It's a drama on your feet, learn it, put this in your body sort of uh, educational experience. And, uh, you know, I guess if it's not taught in English, it probably won't be taught to everyone. So that's probably the reasoning behind that. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of think that, that, you know, if you didn't teach it in English, then you have, I think you have more of an opportunity for people to discover it out in the world. Like we've taken a theatrical thing like Shakespeare and turn it into literature, which it's not right. And taught it in a terrible way. And, 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 and then we expect kids to respect it when we're forcing it down their throats. Whereas if it was something that, that people sort of stumbled upon or learned about outside of school and they got to experience it, then they might like it. I always thought that, you know what, having the teacher, you know, and I, I had teachers and that we, they did exactly that. We started this table and everybody reads a paragraph. We go back until we're there and we start back at the beginning and it's a terrible way to do it. But I always thought the first thing you should do is take the kids to a theater where they can see the play and then we can talk about it and then we can read it. But first get them to see it before we start teaching it in a terrible way. That's if we teach it at all. Yeah, and I mean, we've got an amazing program uh, at the Rose that's been there for a number of years, and we've almost lost it a couple times, and it's called Shake It Up. And what it is is we take one of Shakespeare's uh, 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 plays, whichever, and we do like a 20, 30-minute version. It's narrated with pieces of text, basically. Like, then all this shit happened, and then here's a scene. Then all this shit happened, and here's a scene. Am I allowed to swear on this, Phil? I didn't ask. Um, but yeah. Yeah, you can, you can fucking swear. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the internet. <laughs> it's the internet, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's how it works. And we go into a school and we cast it. We cast the kids. 
And um, some, in some schools, it's an extracurricular activity. In some schools, it's part, they actually built it into the curriculum. Um, and we, we cast it. We put the show on. And the kids that didn't want to be in it or didn't make it uh, help with sets, pro- costumes, et cetera. And we put it on at the Rose. And we've done it every year for at least 12 years now. It's such an awesome experience. It's one of my favorite things to do because, um, you know, some kids hate it. Uh, and, and kind of make it make a, a laugh out of it. But uh, we we one of the most important things in this is the, that we've done with this is we've made it part of the curriculum for a number of years with the Peel Alternative School. Now, these are kids that um, don't have uh, necessarily cognitive uh drawbacks but they have social um uh, issues that make it so that they can't necessarily uh participate some of them have maybe mental um, health issues some of them just might be coming from very difficult situations survivors of abuse etc and we've had uh one experience i had a number of years ago is a young lady had basically a yes my lord kind of line but she was a voluntary mute nobody in her class had heard her speak all year and she went on stage and she did her line Hmm. And, it, and like, I mean, this play was terrible to watch. It's like you were coming on the street, you'd be like, what is even happening? But these kids <laughs> put every bit of their soul into it. And, hmm. uh, and, and like we have a number of incredibly rewarding stories like that, like kids hmm. that had all but dropped out of the alternative school were coming to class and working on it and actually hmm. interested in it. And, and, you know, we had people fall in love and have their little relationships or the hmm. cast romances. And they don't realize how fleeting that is yet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so they, uh, that was, always an incredibly rewarding experience and it's interesting because we start talking about how maybe it should be other plays and not shakespeare Mm. um i suppose because shakespeare might fall out of the curriculum one day it might i don't know but i kind of hope not because i feel like one of the key things i managed to to use uh in teaching that to kids was discussing the the parallels to hip-hop the parallels Mm. to you know to to uh spoken word which is of course you know very akin to hip-hop uh and kids really picked up on that because obviously it's multi-ethnic uh and also also hip-hop is just a language of people that are you know 20 years younger than me 25 Mm. years younger than me um and it's something that they can relate to very easily and so you know i i'm old and lame now but uh (laughs) when we first started this i wasn't and it it was really kind of a helpful tool to uh to get kids engaged on that yeah, there's there's something about and, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I think that, as I mentioned, that that if we don't reform the way that we teach Shakespeare, it's going to be dropped from the curriculum. hundred percent. Yeah, because, again, I think we do fall into the mistake of treating it like it's literature. Yeah. And it isn't. And yeah. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. It's not meant to be read in the same way that we read all the same things like great, the great Gatsby or Lord of the Flies. It's not meant to be read like that. Frankly, we and should the act fact that we're still the fact that we're still reading those and like I could say to a kid who's like in like grade 10 now. So you're reading Lord of the Flies. Right. And they'll be like, yes, because my parents read it and their parents read it. Like, it's like we need to re- like bring in some new things. We shouldn't be reading the same shit. But yeah, and we... I think that's starting to happen a little bit in Peel. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. There's a lot of a push for more indigenous work uh, and things like that. And I think I think I don't quote me. Well, quote me if you want, but I can be wrong. Um, that I think that uh, that those changes are coming, but hmm. not quickly enough. I mean, Lord no. of the Fly, we're good. We all get Lord of the Flies. There's a conch. We're good. Yeah, uh, we don't we don't need to. <laughs> we definitely don't need to talk about Piggy and his asthma anymore. Like no. this is like the fact that the fact that I could say that and everybody who's ever taken an English English class knows exactly what I'm talking about. And they roll their eyes. Yeah, like that is that is not a book that's speaking to people and nobody likes it. So let's like 
find stuff that people want to read so that they actually develop a love of reading, which is the entire point of the course. Anyway, <laughs> I will get off my soapbox. Now. <laughs> Don't I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that, that, you know, one of the things that, that is problematic about Shakespeare is often there's a perception of the audience. And when you say Shakespeare, most people imagine an audience of white people, old white people rattling their jewelry. Yeah, I know old white people. And you know what? And there's, there's truth to that. You know, if you, if you, if you ever do Shakespeare, if you ever go to, you ever do Stratford, you know, the audience that you're talking about. And, and it's an, it's, that's what people are imagining. And so they think of it as something that's dying. And so it's not for me. If I'm young or if I'm black or indigenous or 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 South Asian or or, or Chinese, does it like how is this for me if that's the audience? And, you know, Stratford's done a, and, and you know some other companies as well. I will I will add have done a lot of work to try and make people feel represented on the stage. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. we're doing that work. Actually, Rose is going to be, we're supposed to have already presented, but we're going to presenting a, a, a Hamlet that is going to have a, a, a young South Asian man who's got an incredible following my brain uh, as a. Uh, I, I don't want to butcher his name, but I, you, you can look it up. The hair, uh, the Rose Theater is going to be presenting a beautiful <laughs> Hamlet. It's going to be amazing. Um, but yeah, the uh, but it brings me to my my myth, and I have a bit of a myth that drives me crazy because it's my job to analyze audiences and keep track of what trends are going, and that is the dying audience myth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, we got to stop doing this work. That audience is old and dying. I've been hearing that in my twenty five years in theater about shakespeare and guess what those 80 year olds were 55 25 years ago mm-hmm. and they, they, they recycled into it and old white people uh, you get treated like they're some sort of villains in the theater world sometimes not all the time in that like they, they've they've already had their turn to watch shows so we mm. should stop doing shows for them they, they still want to watch shows if they're into this work there's still an if there's an audience do the show there is room for old white people like me uh well i'm not old but i will be one day to watch shows that are part of their story in their life and there is room for young brown work there is room for queer work there is room for all of this work but in order for that work to happen the old white work is going to have to make some of that room as well and it can't and that's the work really if i'm going to put it kind of in a vulgar way that i just did that's the work i'm doing that's the work i'm trying to do not Mm -hmm. alone not in a vacuum with my entire team and with the uh, the um, arts and culture plan the culture master plan that Brampton has addresses that in mm. a roundabout way um, and, and, and with a, a, a many tiered approach and that's what we really need to think about as audiences is this, the audiences aren't dying because there's no evidence to support that you know the the the, the Mervis shows are still full the Broadway audiences I just went in, in, in February before the world came to an end and all everything I saw was full of 80 year old white people just like it was full of 80 year old white people 20 years ago 40 years ago that audience still exists and they're not going anywhere there's just new audiences coming so mm-hmm. that's why I kind of call it the myth of the dying audience because this you, you put up a you put up a West Side Story on Broadway. It's going to run for two years, like it's happening. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's who the old white people are going to. That uh, the old white people are villain come from away right now, and so are young people. That the more people are coming, and inter, intersectional audiences are the most beautiful thing in the world. Show me more of that. Show me every color and every every sexuality in the rainbow checking out a show, and I'm in my happy place. But we need to not just assume that everybody's dying because there's no evidence. I mean, everybody is dying, but they're being yeah, replaced yeah. by some sort of old, old blue haired crones, <laughs> clones, not crones. Wow. Freud. Oh, wow. Um, 
but yeah. Um, so that's my kind of, that's my soapbox mm. rant on the audiences are dying. No, they're not. No, I think, I think the issue is that is the audiences are not, I know. I mean, you could see it in the Mervish productions, like with a few misses, a few rare occasions, the shows are not, you know, they're, they're selling, they're selling well, mm-hmm. you know, or they're packed or things like that. So there's, there's, there's an audience for stuff that people want to see. Yeah. Um, I think the the audiences are dying thing comes from uh, people who are like having difficulty reaching their audience mm-hmm. who are um, perhaps, uh, you know, they've exhausted the Shakespeare's that people want to see um, or things like that. You know, there's 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 a lot more to it than just like all theater is dying and the audience is dying out. But Audrey, you're right yeah. in that in that in that um, in order to create intersectional theater that speaks to the world that we actually live in that isn't just old white people and, or just white people in general, we have to make the space in the theater so that the, 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 the non-white theater for want of a better room word, the, the, the theater that is speaking to the whole community can come in. Um, and so we have to like make the space for it. And that does mean that we do a few more, a few fewer Shakespeare's or whatever. Yeah. And I think um, the key uh, and uh, something I kind of had an epiphany about not too long ago uh, was stop trying to make people of color and people of different experiences buy into your white work. Um, your more traditionally uh, mm. European mm-hmm. work, I suppose we should stop accusing old white people of being bad. Cause we, I think we've already established that's not our belief, but we're still using the term. <laughs> I don't want to anger anybody. Um, but we I have... don't mind angering people. I'm fine with it. They yeah, can, good. They can email uh, me. Fuck them then. Uh, but I think we need to get our traditionally white audiences to buy into to other works, indigenous work, uh, um, South Asian stories, uh, stories of people of color, various colors, queer stories. We need to get the people that wouldn't necessarily be into that naturally that are coming into mm-hmm. our venue. We got to make that accessible to them. And uh, you know, there's the whole like you know, if you're building uh, if you're building a season mind of programming, get like eighty percent of what those people want or 70% of what your traditional audience, your core audience would want, and then give them a 20, 30% of something that is not their thing at all. And Mm. then, and then set up basically uh, buy four, get five shows and then give Mm. them that ticket that's built into that subscription. And maybe they'll come take a chance and maybe they'll expand their horizons. And that's kind of what a lot of uh, the, um, you know, I know Mervish has that kind of view. Mm. I know Stratford has that kind of view. You just have to look at the program to figure out that's what they're doing. Um, Shaw definitely is doing that. Um, So yeah, you just, you have a look at those big three. That's what they're doing. And so are all our municipal venues. You look at my programming, Mm. you're going to see the same thing. Mm -hmm. You look at the Rose Theater's, uh, uh, brochure. You're not going to see my name anywhere in it, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's an, what I do. There, <laughs> there's a, there's an interesting interesting thing is that is that when we're talking about you know indigenous theater, we're talking about uh, Asian theater, South Asian theater, we're talking about theater uh, uh, created by Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, often, when you present that to white people, their first response is, "Well, I don't think that's for me." Yes. which is a very telling thing because they because white the white society expects that our white work is for them. <laughs> yeah. But their work is not for us, which is ridiculous. Um but it's sort of like it goes both ways like how do we expect um 
you know, them to say, to come to yet another Shakespeare? How do we expect people of color to come to another Shakespeare or something like that when we won't go to the shows that they're creating? And you know, you know what? Uh, there's an I have an enigma that I cannot figure out because that is what you just said. I feel is a hundred percent true for theater, but it's not for music. White audiences will fall all over themselves for uh, for certain uh, singers, performers of color, dancers mm-hmm. of color, just lose their ever loving minds for for uh, for artists that are of color um, mm. or other BIPOC work. It, it, you know, I. I think about how much my grandmother loved Harry Belafonte, but I, I, if right. I could ever get her to see, you know, my, actually I shouldn't use her as an example because she'd be open to seeing anything. She's mm. not, but she would have been open to seeing anything. But so people that might love music created by, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. If I'm going mm-hmm. into 80 year old uh, demographic, you know, th- they see that music is for them. Uh, mm-hmm. Why won't they see these stories of, of humanity and, and change and acceptance, which is basically what all theater is, you know, wh- whatever the color is, and also maybe learn something about a culture uh, as not for them. And I don't understand why they don't, but they'll buy into a person of color singing songs that they know. Uh, so what's the difference? Is that tokenism? probably so how do i how do we get people to 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 take a chance on a theater piece and part of it is money and time investment people want to go and see what they want to see you know theater is theater creators like to think of their work and they're mostly right as something new and exciting but theater audiences love their nostalgia and buying a Mm -hmm. ticket is kind of a a trip down memory lane for a lot of folks specifically in a lot of the programming that uh, municipal theaters do you know for example it's always a big deal when we get burton cummings and and he comes Mm. to the theater every couple of years sells out in a hot minute he hasn't released a new thing in years uh probably decades and certainly not Mm. nothing that anybody in the audience would even know they want to go see american woman they want to see you know Mm. his his 10 hits and they're excellent he puts on a great show so the criticism of his work but i feel like audiences buy for nostalgia more than creators think uh and it, it that's a hard nut to crack um, it is there's also something because you know you're talking about about music people go and see music yeah. from all different cultures often the artists that they're seeing are going to be performing things they know exactly and part. oftentimes when we are presenting theater and we're trying to say hey here's a new play by this indigenous artist they don't know that they don't know what they're going to get and I think sometimes they're afraid that they're going to, is that going to make me feel bad? Yes. You know, and that's something that, that white people hate is, is to feel bad. Honestly. Or to be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be a, a, a little bit brutal. I see everything I can in all of the, uh, the you know, the kind mm-hmm. of indie venues. And yeah. I go to fringe as much as I can. Uh, and sometimes I get tired of being made to feel bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's justified and their stories are right. But I'm sitting there in an audience like, do I feel like shit? Wow. White people are terrible. And this just proved it. I'm going to go to the bar. And I don't know if I want to spend my leisure time doing that all the time. And I think that might be, there might be some validity to that. Now I am no way in no way saying that needs to stop. I think it needs to continue. There needs to be more of it. And people need to learn how to be comfortable in their fears and in maybe being made to feel like they maybe have been a part of a shitty system that has oppressed people. I feel mm-hmm. like we need to sit in that discomfort. But I also kind of get why if you're out on a ni- nice date with your wife, you're going for a nice dinner, you don't necessarily want to go see a play about how shitty you've been to people and how much you've turned a blind eye to residential schools for the last 
uh, 80 years of your life. And, mm. and, and so there, I, I, I kind of get why people don't want to see that, but it needs to continue being created. And we need to figure out ways to make that accessible uh, mm. and, and make that discomfort more comfortable. Q and A's are always a great way to do that. And you'll find like when people do a Q and A that that's really helpful. Um, but I think there does need to be a focus on if you want the money in the theater, you know, the audiences that exist are mainly old and white. We do want to of course grow the audiences. So you need to figure out ways to make to, to to approach them and make them make it okay that they feel uncomfortable, so they don't feel attacked. I don't mm. know what the answer to that is, and I'm also not don't necessarily think that it's the playwright's responsibility or the production company's responsibility. But it is whoever at the end of the day wants more money from those people's responsibility to mm. figure out a way to do it. If we're just going transactional on this, which we can all talk about how wonderful and beautiful theater is and how it shouldn't be about the money, but it fucking is. Uh, yeah, and, and like that's great. You want to pay your rent, then it's about the money. Uh, and if your show loses money, you're going to stop putting shows on in my theater. That's just kind of the crappy way that it works mm. not you know not so much for presenting house like me because you know i have lost leaders and then i make up for it with burton cummings that's fine that's kind of <laughs> my world but if i'm looking at you know an indie theater company like a uh, tpm i'll use them as an example they can't just hemorrhage money all the time no uh, so they, they've got to they've got to figure out a way that they're going to make sure that the audiences are going to keep coming. Now they have, they're kind of a bad example because they have audiences full of white people that are willing to take a chance on being told that they're bad people. How do you get them to bring friends and how do you get them to, to expand their circle? Because old white people are a big theater audience and we want them to keep coming, but we also want room for young Brown people as a contrast to old white people, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to change gears just a little bit as we, as we sort of draw to a close, there's a question that I've been asking everybody um, who's been on since March when the pandemic started and theaters shut down. Because a lot of people are are in new situations. A lot of people I know are are not able to work. Um, their, their contracts have been canceled, all that stuff, or they're working from, some people are working from home. It's a very different world. And in some ways it can be a little bit depressing. And we all need to find something that gives us joy each day. So, so Danny, what gives you joy every day that helps you get up and get to work and get through the day? Well, uh, I'll tell you, uh, I've, I've got uh, two little girls um, and one of them is four months old. She was born in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. And wow. so the excitement around that uh, has got me through every day. Um, my, my first daughter, I share custody with her mother's a wonderful person. We are no longer married, um, but we have 50-50 custody. And uh, mm. so over the summer, I'd have her all day and working from home. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't sit here for eight hours a day at my glued to my computer. I get up, mm. I hang out with her. We go for walks a little bit. Mm. We, we, we play a board game way more. So I bonded with her a lot more. And also my current partner um, was very pregnant. So I was taking care of her as best as I could and then right. had a newborn. So I'm taking care of them the best I can. So, mm. I, you know, I work basically out of my kitchen so I can cook while I'm doing this. So I've make, I've, like every, every other basic old white dude, I've mastered sourdough. And I have <laughs> mastered sourdough. I've had the same sourdough starter going from March 13th. And I don't have a lot of ego about things I do well, but I kick sourdough's ass. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're one, of, you're one of the few, sir. You're one of the few. <laughs> I took a lot, man. There were a lot of bad batches. Uh, but yeah, it's a, uh, so I've been able to just kind of focus on little things like that. Like, hanging out with a baby and like smiling with mm. her and bonding with her in a way that I would not get to do if I was gone 40 hours a week. And I'm not, mm. that's 40 hours more a week every day that I have with her. So I'm finding my blessings where I can. 
Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of shopping on Amazon. <laughs> Uh, as, which, uh, as 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 you as you do in the pandemic, yeah. yes, I'm also supporting local. <laughs> I, I am as much as I can. My Uber Eats bill, if I if I ever do that math, it's going to be insane. <sighs> yeah, no, uh, you and me both. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it, so like just kind of keeping keeping focused on my family and uh, mm. and the, the the people I love. That's been a big part of it. But also, I've had the blessing of being able to work, and we pivoted mm. early to uh, to online presenting. We did living room to living room until we could open up our venue. Now we're going from our stage with the empty house behind the audiences. We've kind of inverted it. A three camera setup. We're presenting, we're presenting artists. We're going to start presenting theater, uh, presenting music. The, uh, we have the orchestra doing a piece in, in our, uh, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. We have, uh, pop singers doing like acoustic versions of their, their concerts uh, and it's all free and you can just go on and you have to register through our website but you get a you get a vimeo link and you can just watch live concerts and I, i've been programming like crazy uh probably busier than i've ever been because i usually have mm. a year lead time i've had two three weeks to get a show together and mm. it's really exciting and really engaging and, and work that i just absolutely love uh, and I've been able to support Brampton artists and artists of color and queer artists because um, we've been really focused through one of our programs called This is Brampton Live Online. Uh, it's, it's all local artists or local curators that are engaging local artists, um, hip hop, uh, comedy. And it's really the part of my, my goal of making Brampton artists giving them a platform, giving them a voice, giving them an opportunity. I take no credit for their, their, their mastery of their work. I only have mm. been able to, I, I, my job, I'm not going to lie, is a bit of a gatekeeper. Um, mm. And uh, I don't like to consider it that way because I like to try and give everybody a fair shot, but there's stuff I say no to, you know, in the room and there's stuff I say no to eventually. Um, but the, being able to open up these opportunities to curators. So not only are, Brampton artists performing, but Brampton labels, Brampton managers are, are learning the skills of what it takes to put a show into a theater. And that's probably my favorite program that we work on. And I've been mm. able to really double down on that. Danny, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. It's been absolutely my pleasure. This has been a Homebody Productions production.